Welcome to the Asian Sewist Collective podcast. The Asian Sewist Collective is a group of Asian people from around the world brought together by our shared appreciation for fiber and textile arts and our desire to see more Asian representation in the sewing community. In this podcast, we explore the intersection of our identities and our shared sewing practice as we create a space for Asian sewists and our allies. I'm your co-host, Ada Chen, and I'm recording from Denver, Colorado. Denver is a traditional territory of the Ute, Cheyenne, and Arapaho peoples. I'm a Taiwanese-American marketer turned entrepreneur, and these days you'll find me running my all-natural skincare business called Chuan's Promise. That's C-H-U-A-N apostrophe S, Promise, in sharing my marketing tips on my blog. Most importantly for this podcast, you can find my sewing at i.hope.so on Instagram. And I'm your co-host, Nicole. I'm based outside of Chicago, the original homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, the Ojibwe, the Potawatomi, and the Odawa people. I'm a Philippine-American woman, a lawyer by day, and a sewing enthusiast the rest of the time. You can find me on Instagram at Nicole Angeline Sews. Before we dive into this week's episode, Nicole, can you tell us about your current sewing project? Oh, you're going to love this. You're going to love this. I brought it. There's visuals. So if this, uh, when this is on Instagram or on YouTube. On Wednesday was my beautiful Zizu's 15th birthday. He is, you know, Ada, you describe you and Mochi as like the quintessential Asian girl with small white dog. I think I'm you, but like just expand it a little bit. He's a Bichon Frise, so he's like 25 pounds. I'm a little bit taller than you. Anyway, it's just we're, we're basically the same. And um, I was like, you know what? 15 is a milestone. And why not? I had a 10th birthday party that was like a pseudo housewarming as well for us. And um, something I've never done before was make matching shirts for me and my dog. So it's happened. <gasps> so, okay, I'll show you. I'll show you. I finished his. Ta-da. <laughs> oh, my God. It has a collar with that black. Oh, my God. My mom was like, it has a collar. I'm like, I know, it's so formal. <laughs> and Does he- the button pocket actually finish or did you finish it with like Velcro? It's Velcro, girl. I ain't about that life. The Are the seams finished inside? You will never know. Neither will he because he's a dog. And then I like to put labels on things always. And I, I, I don't know if you can read this, but it's a um, Inside Voices labels. Um, Joe. Yeah, Joe has a lot of really funny sewing labels, but some I don't know what I'm going to do with. But this one is perfect. Right where Zizu's tail is, also where his butt is, I put in intermittent hazardous odors. <laughs> so that's that's just a that's just a haha for me. This is um, a pattern I just googled from Mimi M I M I and Tara T A R A store. It's just an Etsy shop of all dog clothes sewing patterns. I made him a size large, um, so you know, sizeism is real even in, in like dog clothing. And this is the Ruby Star Society quilting cotton in uh, an older print uh, from the Rise collection by designer Melody Miller. And yes, I did make a matching shirt. What's I don't have that here because it's not as exciting, honestly. Let's be real. Also, you need to finish the seams on it. I do. And and they are finished. The last thing, I just need to set in the sleeves. Everything else is done. I've even hemmed the bottom. And this is, uh, my shirt is also going to be a collared shirt, but 
because of course it's going to be a collared shirt because everyone's going to match it. But it's a Peter Pan collar. Oh, um, it's a new pattern coming out by Seamwork called the Seamwork Romy R O M I E. Um, as a Seamwork ambassador, I get like advanced copies of these. Uh, it's going to get released September first, so by the time that this comes out, it'll already be out. Um, I'm not. I've never been into Peter Pan collars. You know, I'm just like this is a little bit not. It's a little bit too soft for me, I suppose. But I saw some of the ambassador makes. You know, we're making them ahead of time and chatting about it. Um, and I just wanted to give it a try because I'm on the quest for woven work shirts. And so tomorrow, we will be wearing matching shirts. Also, my mom is going all out because <laughs> we're having it at her house because she has a yard. The house I grew up in has a yard with a fence. And we've invited all our cousins with their dogs. <laughs> it, this is a whole production. Yeah, it was just going to be like a small thing. I was going to order a pizza. Um, I bake Zizu a tiny cake since every year since he's uh, he turned 10. And by bake, I mean it's four ingredients and I never bake anything ever. So I'm just going to bake some. This is not sewing related, but hey, I'm going to bake some cupcakes for do- for the, the doggy guests. Um, and uh, my mom has retired. And so I think just like having something to work on has been fun for her. So I've been getting texts and calls and I had to stop a call once because I was like in the middle of something. Um, she's making like Zizu fans. I don't have one from here. I like, like, you know, if it's hot. Um, I asked her to make puppy chow. I was going to for the humans, um, which Michael was like, we need to tell them it's only for humans. I was like, no, we don't. You're the only one that doesn't know that. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> she's going to make that. And then, of course, um, once I once the aunties were notified, everything's being ordered and made for food food wise. So I'm like, oh, I'm not even going to bring pizza anymore because you're all bringing all this wonderful Filipino food. Anyway, dog shirt, people shirt matching. You'll see it on the interweb sometime in September. (laughs) What are you working on, Ada? So in our time in between seasons, uh, I guess I'm in the phase of life where everybody's having weddings and then like 12 months later, they're like, guess what? I'm having a baby. And you're like, oh my God, are we qualified humans to do that um so that happened over the break to two of my friends not two two of my friends I'm very happy for two of my friends who are having planned pregnancies and as we have established on previous seasons I like to give our friends baby quilts when they're about to have their baby now was I told about these babies probably six months ago yes did I start working on either of those quilts No. One of them is due in October and one is due in November. So the October one has, I actually gave these people a little more choice this time in pattern because I was like, now I've tried all the things like you tell me and I'll have fun figuring out the fabric. Um, So one of them, the one due in October has chosen the looper quilt, which is this really cool um, rainbow line basically with like a curve so there's curves to play with and I think it's like five or six different colors and a backing um, she did say that a black or darker background as in the pattern photos would be pretty cool because light colors I believe would be terrible to work with with a baby who you know things come out of the baby and so uh, our project is I have all the fabric pulled from my stash. Like I have all these different colors and patterns and it's just to get to cutting and actually assembling it in time. 
I will actually be back in New York right before she's due, but I assume at that point she will not want to have the visitors. So I might just be dropping it off at her apartment and then running. Um, and uh, the other person who is due in November has chosen the range quilt, which I think there's a photo of this on my Instagram where I just made the quilt. I wasn't paying attention to the measurements. I was just cutting la la la, like taking advantage of having space because I don't live on a coast anymore. And then the topper came out to be literally like a full-sized mattress. And I was like, oh my God, I, I really messed this up. It's a baby. Well, this baby's taking this to college, like all the way through. We have, we have since backtracked and then like we're going to size this appropriately for our time and skills. And my friend who selected that pattern actually wanted to go with a yellow green gradient. So it's going to be pretty cool. Um, they, they are very upset about the baby's gender, but they are also very open to providing the baby. We're, we've nicknamed it, but I don't want to share that on the podcast. We've nicknamed their baby, and we always talk about how this baby is an alpha female and that she doesn't want to be dressing this baby in head-to-toe pink and kind of conforming to gender stereotypes. So yellow and green, I don't know, gradient-ish, ish. I'm saying ish because I haven't pulled the fabric yet. Uh, for this person and wish me luck on finishing two baby quotes in two months <laughs> um good luck <laughs> i i've done three baby quotes they've all been whole cloth and they've all been done in like the weekend before <laughs> but that's different you're like you're piecing it i don't give nobody a choice um but yeah i think i'm giving them a choice because these are two really good friends who i've known for like a decade plus Oh, I still didn't give my <laughs> choices. I just kind of was like, this is, is this your aesthetic? Yep. And then that was it. It's easy. One of my cousins is obsessed with hedgehogs. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Not talking about me. But yes, good luck. I, I'm familiar with both patterns. I have the looper pattern. When I when I went through this phase where I'm like, I'm going to be a quilter. Um, so I've got this box of things that are specifically meant for quilting blankets or like even panels. Like there's a box. That's it. There's a box. (laughs) (laughs) Look, have I also made a bunch of clothes in the time I should have been working on these quotes? Yes. (laughs) It's fine. It's fine. The baby will be a a baby for at least a little bit. (laughs) And then uh, they can use it for as long as they need to. Baby in a pantsuit is what what I was thinking when you said alpha female. We're doing this new thing where we are doing credits at the top of the episode. So you know who worked on it before it gets started. This episode was produced by me with editing help from Shylan Joy. So today we are happy to welcome Jeff, who is at Yang Chonshik on Instagram. That is Y-A-N-G underscore C-H-E-O-N underscore S-H-I-K. And Jeff is a daily hanbok wearer, designer, and collector of hanbok. Welcome, Jeff. Hello, hello. I'm so pleased and grateful to be here speaking with y'all. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm very excited to chat with you. We had a, a good pre-recording, you know, uh, chat, and I'm like, wait, let's save it for when we talk. <laughs> yes. So I want to start with something that I saw immediately when I first found your Instagram account, and you identify as quote aggressively Korean. Can you say more about that and how it relates to your sewing craft? Sure, I am a transracial Korean adoptee. 
which means I was adopted from Korea and I was raised by a white family in a predominantly white town at a time before the internet. So I had little to no accessibility to Korean culture, language, anything. Um, I believe that's very informative generally in the way of Korean adoptees as we get older, the yearning to know more about ourselves, where we come from, birth search. And I've always been quite a 110% person. I never shied away from a strong look, sort of a theatricality about fashion. Um, but coming down to wanting to avoid the fast fashion industry and making a decision of, well, what clothing do I want to make? And this has come sort of at a time where I'm doing a little bit more language immersion, doing more cooking, just general Korean culture and history. And the aggressively Korean, I just, I feel so strongly about almost reclaiming, and I hate to say what I've lost, but the things that I may have missed out on without the accessibility to Korean culture growing up. I don't always see it as extravagant as I know I am, but it has been pointed out, wow. And I go, well, okay, I guess when I take a step back, quite so, but the term aggressively Korean, uh, someone I hold very close and dear to my heart, my quote-unquote humbok twin. Um, they're on my Instagram, uh, Han, uh, but they also wear humbok on a daily basis, modern interpretations, and the way we use humbok as a way to inform our pride in our culture and identity, especially here in the West, where we are not the homogenous culture dominating everywhere um i do think it is i guess viewed as quite aggressive in full head <laughs> 17 1800s joseon wear um but i wear that with a badge of pride especially here in new york i love that i'm curious so you shared a bit about your experience growing up was it moving to New York that kind of opened up the possibility of exploring your heritage more or like what kind of catalyzed that in your life? Was it like a slower kind of burn? I initially moved here to New York um, as a pianist accompanist for a musical theater. So I stumbled across the Asian musical theater community and for the first time, you know, a a Korea town having, oh no, this is <laughs> how you eat Korean food, or this is this is what we do. This is what we eat. This is Korean skincare. Welcome to the terrifying world <laughs> <laughs> of K beauty. Um, but through my very close dear friends in that group, just immersing myself more. It wasn't. I grew up. You know, you can't hide that you're different in a transracial adoptee relationship. So I always knew I wasn't ashamed of it and it wasn't like an, a disassociative identity, 
but more of I had no idea. There was nothing to see of it. But upon, you know, college, moving to New York, to meet not only Koreans from the peninsula, but Korean Americans, other Korean adoptees, that really just is an increasing. And not that it became more of an insular community, but you meet this Asian and that Asian and this group of Asians. And then you're like, oh, my entire friend group is Asian at this point. <laughs> so it's been an ever-evolving, increasing, this leads to this, leads to this, leads to this kind of ramping up of Asian pride. That's really beautiful, I think, about my own experience. And um, actually, yesterday I had a moment where I was on a call and there was a Filip another Filipino person. This is at work. And then I realized that this is the first time I've encountered another Filipino person in any realm in the work that I do. Um, and I was a little sad. I was like, oh, you know, um, I have a lot of great friends and family, but that I don't get to immerse myself and have those commonalities, just being able to to reference something like food and, and not have to explain what it is um, to other people. And I think that finding that community sounds like a really wonderful experience. And I think uh, it's amazing how we are fully fledged and ever-changing human beings. And I love hearing how um, your journey to New York, you know, really changed the way that you see yourself and maybe the way that you see, you know, your culture and aggressive ain't a bad thing. Um, <laughs> I adore that. So you'd mentioned that you were in, um, you're a, a piano accompanist in theater. You're, that's incredible. Um, and so I know that your your day job is also involved in theater. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, I, like I said, I was a pianist accompanist. So like I, growing up, I always was around hand sewing, like sew this button up, sew this tear up, dye this fast fashion garment a different color, like being crafty, budget friendly, reuse, reuse, reuse. I recently, since discovering and teaching myself humbok and traditional Korean sewing craft, um, I transitioned to working at uh, costume studios here in New York. Uh, so I work as a hand stitcher at a studio. So, you know, hardware, buttons, fine finishing crafts, beads and gemstones and such. So that is what I do. And then I come home and sew some more. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that means you really must enjoy at least some part of it. Oh, yeah. It's it's finding a balance now to where when it wasn't my nine to five, you know, I would grab a fabric in the morning, come home and finish it, you know, one in the morning and just go. I'm very impatient when it comes to my own creations. Um, but this, it's more of okay, I have a weekend, I have fabric, let's be sensible about this. <laughs> I need to drink water during this process. Eating would be a lovely thing to happen during this process. So I am trying to temper the creativity and hand longevity I have. Hand and I, I mean, I I don't even sew on book and I... We're going to get into what goes into the garment. 
I'm sewing like basics and dresses and baby quilts apparently now. And even I need to do that, like set the timer to get up and stretch and drink water, maybe go to the bathroom, see sunlight for a bit, all those things. Gotta be balanced. Gotta listen to your body and listen to what you need. We want to be doing this craft for a very long time. Um, For our listeners who might not know, can you tell us, you are wearing a hanbok today, I believe. So can you share what a hanbok is for those who might not know? Sure. Uh, Hanbok is the term referring to traditional Korean clothing, um, very much in the way of kimono uh, before Western influence. Clothing was just clothing. There was no need for a term for what we wore. So like, you know, it existed like tops, bottoms, coats, dresses, that kind of term. But hanbok in the advent of Western influence in Korea is traditional Korean clothing. You'll see most of its representation now in traditional historical Korean dramas, movies, TV shows. There are quite a good number of modern hanbok on K-pop groups. You know, every Lunar New Year, they'll come out with a photo shoot with some lovely modern interpretations. but you'll see it on like special holidays and such, but humble traditional Korean clothing. Okay. I think I came into this conversation thinking that it was like a, a specific garment, but it's, it's just, it, it is traditional clothing. Yeah. It's alt is the Korean word for clothing. So alt, it's just clothes. And then Western wear came in and there was a need to have a different term and, you know, war and war and such bringing more influence and changing sort of the scale of who was in western wear and whatnot that term sort of became more well used 1900 and beyond so how you've indicated that there are a lot of folks out there who make modern hanbok am i pronouncing that right yeah it's uh, the (laughs) o is almost like a a o o it's like oh. a rounder o, humble, bulk, like humble. Yeah, but not like you don't have to overthink it. <laughs> but it's like a humble, so it's a little more rounder o sound. Okay, I will try. We like to try to honor pronunciations as best we can on the podcast. So it sounds like you're in this vibrant community of folks who make modern humble. What is your definition, or how do you conceptualize modern humble? Looking at back at everything I've made. I don't use traditional Korean fabrics. I have researched and drafted my own patterns based upon museum extents and measurements and doing the horrible, dreadful math of scaling everything to my own sizing. But I tend to stick within 1700s, 1800s Korean pattern and sort of waist and sizing. But I'll use Western fabrics, modern Western fabrics. The way that Humbuck salons in both Korea and worldwide, we've all adapted to, you know, the sins of polyester and such. Um, But that kind of using silk organza instead of a historically printed embossed silk gauze, that kind of modernizing of Humbuck, I guess, is common between what I do personally and what you'll see in like a K-drama or something. 
But modern hombok, I guess, in a more general term, it's, you know, the skirts are shorter, the women's jogori tops are a little bit more cropped, though historically, around the late 1800s, 1900s, it did not even cover the chest for women. Oh, and the full skirt was out? Yeah, the skirt was under bust and the jokori top was over. So it was full chest exposed in these historical photos and, you know, to be such a conservative modern Korea now, but <laughs> you'll see royal motifs, uh, crafts that were designated only for the royal family, such as the gold leafing, the silver leafing, that kind of decorative trim used all over modern hombok. Um a rounder petticoat skirt for women, like the kinds you'll see at the rental places when you go to Korea and you go do the palaces and such. That petticoat silhouette is, you know, a heavy Western influence of that princess full skirt. So there's certain trademarks that you'll see when you look at a historical photo from like 1890s of Korea and that silhouette, and you can see how they layer and pack things differently and sort of how modern tastes evolve. That's so interesting because I do think I noticed that there was more of like a fairy tale vibe going on probably in the last decade, decade plus or so. And I do have a friend who did she recently go to Korea and live her K-drama dream. She did the whole rental, you know, <laughs> photos and everything. There were aunties who were like, oh, you're solo traveling. Let me take your photo for you. And she sent them to me and they're they're adorable. I, I like I was like I cannot <laughs> these are so cute but these are this is not actually a hanbok this is a costume um because I'm like there's like extra stuff on your sleeves and there's lots of petticoat going on like what is happening here and how did you go to the bathroom <laughs> was like kind of what was going through my brain but you did mention Jeff that there's studios that create hanbok now and then there's places that you can rent them from for special occasions or photos i'm really curious because you make your hanbok did you start by making or did you buy one where did your first hanbok come from <laughs> my first step into the hanbok waters in many asian cultures you know a baby's first birthday marks one of the days in modern culture you'd be dressed in traditional clothing so as a adoptee, there's, you know, certain milestones that I knew I was quote unquote missing that I wanted to experience still. I eventually scoured eBay and found a vintage humbok that, and blessedly of being a tiny size, I can cram myself into a lot. But putting that first humbok on, and it was for my birthday, and, you know, I'm projecting a lot onto this experience but that first humbok and realizing I knew the power of fashion the power of clothes and how it reflects you but how much that impacted me at a time where I was making a little bit more sewing wise finding that out um, but from that first humbok I did a rub off pattern of that made a I honestly confess I do not make mock-ups. I make living mock-ups where I'll cram it out and go, wow, that was wrong. So I'll know for the next time. Um, but you still wear it. 
But yeah, I'll still wear it with pride and bless all my friends who were blind to the sins that I was flaunting around for the first few months. Thank you. But from that sort of experimenting, then watching a more accurate, if there is such a word, movie or drama, seeing the proportion, looking up how tall that actor is, where things hit on his body, doing the math to translate to me to make the adjustments to my pattern. Blessedly, no shade on our cultures, but Asian garments tend to be fairly easy to draft, being all fairly much geometry. The drafting process for Hombok and figuring out different garments from, I guess I call it my block, was fairly easy once I got the first few drafts out into making my own sizing, what I prefer. And you know, it's an evolving for us all as we make our own clothing, but you finding that sort of ideal fit, what kind of fabrics I want, what silhouette really works for me, that has all just been a process since that very first one. Wow. So that's like serious skills. <laughs> just a lot of time on my hands. <laughs> a lot of time. It's interesting you point out that a lot of the silhouettes are, are simple to draft. And, I, and, I, and of course, this is just how my brain works. I'm thinking about what I've read and learned about pre-colonial Filipino history. And same, because it, it, it was more about using what you had, you know, not cutting complex. You can't afford scraps, you know, back in the day. You just cover it. There was definitely some uh, bare chesting happening and for both for everybody um, back then. It was just a lot more practical, um, which makes it nice for replicating now, except for the bare chest thing for women, because that's not something that is encouraged in anywhere anymore. But that being aside, um, it's so interesting to hear how you took something that was pre-made and how you learned and grew and, and started making your own things that are, are just perfect for you. And and like, yes, uh, perfect is not a great word, but I love all your stuff. It's so great. So can you describe your creative process for making new hanbok when, when you, instead of the I buy in the morning and finish it at night. Like, what does that look like for you now? You know, where do you get your materials? I'd love to know all of it. Uh, so nowadays, I'll happily take a few days upon it. I get all my fabric for the most part. I think I might have one humbuk. Uh, it's like a accurate, traditional counselor's robe. And Sostein, dear Christine, embroidery, sewer, maker goddess um i commissioned an embroidery rank badge patch set from them to complete it uh but that is the only thing i've gotten like korean fabric i now know where to outsource if i need patterns or really specific korean motifs but I'll go down to the garment district here in new york plentiful beautiful smelly <laughs> awful Garment District, New York City. But I'll stop down. I now know I am a silky taffeta boy and organza. That is where I sit happily right now. I think in my Instagram, you may see a little bit more experimental in the previous bits. And thinking practically on budget now, where whatever I make, I need to ensure that it's not a one-time deal. Being a little bit more cautious, but I'll get my fabrics from the garment district, or I might get some garbage cast-offs from work, blessedly. Um, 
So there are some beautiful things to be had from many different sources. Uh, but the process is now having such a solid base of wardrobe where I have, one could say, too many options to choose from. But I'll pick out, maybe it's seasonal, the most recent are organzas. I luckily came into many yards of organza, but uh, have figured for summer, uh, traditionally, historically, it would have been a transparent silk gauze in Humboldt history. And for summer, it's just lovely for a no ventilation subway ride. So, <laughs> for instance, with this, am I layering this as a top piece? Then I'll want to make sure my sleeves are as deep as can be. In this point, if I'm very inspired by a specific garment in a certain manner, then of course I'll have a clear idea. But in the instance that I go to the garment district, I'll find a fabric and go, this is it. Is this swish a little bit more? If so, then it will become a cholik, which is the pleated skirt garment that I am more prone to wearing nowadays because I love a princess silhouette. Um, also, the breeze of that subway great air, you know? <laughs> oh, God, just the hot urine smell just walking <laughs> through my silks. It's beautiful. Um, Rad girl summer. Rad girl summer, yes. you know? <laughs> yes. All the time. It's my life. Depending on what the fabric, how that sort of reacts and moves, that might dictate. But once upon choosing the garment, come home, I don't have a pattern anymore. I know how things hit and how things lay. For the most part, the humbuk that I also make for customers, for clients, coincidentally, we have all been the same size where Eastern <laughs> patterns will treasure more of the fabric itself. You know, it may not necessarily be as skin tight. So there is some liberty with sizing. So where we may not be the exact Western measurements bare skin, we can wear the same humbuk and create the same silhouette. Uh, so drafting my patterns come out of my head, I know this size rectangle makes XYZ. So I might go four days taking my time with like a Saturday, get the fabric, make a first cut, go for my walk, go on whatever adventure I need to have. Sunday, maybe come up and seam shell and lining and then join it together over the next two nights. So I'll try and really take my time so I'm very fearful of pressuring what I love about sewing and what I love and I'm passionate about humble, that business mentality harming that. So I'm very, take a step back, enjoy every moment. If you don't feel in the mood, don't push it because I will not sew hatred into my own garments, especially. So I try my hardest to be in the best mental state as I can sewing things now. I've sewn hatred into my garments for sure. <laughs> oh, and it is a valid, wonderful tool. I have a great amount of hate garments hanging in my closet right now. <laughs> Sometimes you just need to like, you know, pedal down and 
because you're having a bad day. And that theme's just going to be an angry theme. Yeah, it's a rage-sowing incident. And I am not victimless of that (laughs) rage-sowing crime. (laughs) But I try my hardest now to be as calm and relaxed as can be. No, I love that. I, I When you said, I don't want to sew hate into my garments, I was like, man, I sew a lot of hate into my garments. And I think doing it with love would be a lot more enjoyable. It's not that it's not enjoyable, but yeah, no, I think being more mindful about the energy that you put in and I've gotten better about that. I think at the beginning I used to see everything and everything had to be perfect. And now it's like, this is fun. Look, I made a dog shirt. Are the seams finished? No, it's all good. Who cares? You're not looking. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And this is a a silly question. Well, maybe it's not silly, but how many yards do you typically buy when you're ready to uh, make new hanbok? Because I think my standard is like a yard and a half for a shirt. I don't make dresses anymore, but like three yards for a dress. It seems like you're, you're just swaddled in fabric. Is it as much as I think it is? Drowning every day. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm a little bit more extravagant. You know, the highest upon the highest of society would have, you know, an X amount of layers on. I layer not historically accurate because I like a little bit more of a poof, especially in the cholik pleated one. Historically, that was a military garment. It was drafted so when you sit on a horse, the skirts sort of flutter and you can move and have accessibility. And, you know, throughout every culture's historical, it became more a societal thing and evolved to what it is now today. But the most extravagant for that cholet garment, I like to have maybe around four and a half for the outer fashion fabric. And then, you know, lining is a different matter. Like I said, I've been inspired by the 18th, maybe specific silhouette. But like my skirts, I'll overlap the pleating. So it's not just seam, seam my side panels will overlap almost to a quarter into my back panel. So when I sit down or whatnot, nobody can get a glimpse of anything. Or (laughs) on a windy day, I know I'm extravagant already, but there are days when I just want to be left alone, discreet. But I have beautiful organza yards just trailing and fluttering behind me, and I'm like, stop it. (laughs) So about four and a half is where I'm laying out now. And then maybe the little top bottom sets, jogori, top, baji, pants. I could get away with like two yards each or so. Maybe I can really nest it if it's not a pattern and like sacrifice an inch here or there. Like it's, I'm, I work very much with whatever the fabric is especially if I inherit it from places and this is what you get, you don't get upset, (laughs) then I'll, you know, adjust accordingly. But in a perfect, undiluted world, a really wide bolt, four and a half, maybe five if I really want an extravagant sleeve or something. I love that because I think we did a few episodes on you know, zero waste sewing, sustainability with sewing. And in a lot of our research, it was like, well, yeah, we have these patterns now that are telling us these cutting layouts, but really like that's not anything new because a lot of the historical garments, if we look at how 
much money it cost and how much time it cost for an artisan to produce a silk, for example, of that level, like you weren't wasting any of it. <laughs> like deeply inspired by historical practice of textile preservation. I mean, universally, but especially Asian countries, like when you have a museum shot of, for say, one of these see-through coats, traditionally they would never cut away the seam allowance. Like the preservation of that beautiful, beautiful rectangle would be held onto. So when it becomes sun faded or laundering, you'd unbaste everything, wash it. If, like I said, sun faded, you'd flip the textile inside out for a refreshed, unbleached color and sew it back up. The preservation, that aspect and idea has come into handy now when I'm going back to adjust something or alter or gift to a friend who needs a maybe bigger arm size. It's, oh, thank goodness I didn't cut away three inches of seam allowance. <laughs> that literally happened to me, not on a hanbok, but on a sari. Not a, it was technically not the sari. It was the crop top that I had bought with the sari and I was going to a friend's wedding and I bought this for another wedding pre-pandemic. So maybe we gained an inch on the bust. And I had I had put on the top before we left for this wedding. Like I knew it fit, but it was tight. And when I put it on again before we were going, I was like, I really can't breathe. And then I looked, I didn't, it did never occurred to me when I was, before I was packing to look at the side seams and lo and behold, a genius person who had made this top had actually, they had actually three rows of stitching on both side seams. And so I, I just sat there and I didn't have my seam ripper. I had nail clippers and thank God it was basted though. And I was like, I don't know how I missed this before I've had this for a while I just don't wear it that often and so here I am in my in-laws uh bathroom like nail clipping the basic seams out and it was it was perfect so the same thing like don't cut away your seam allowance but I do have a practical question you live in New York City as a past New York City girly Jersey girl I gotta ask I was the person who would practically you know go in on the New Jersey transit and path in my flats or my flip-flops and then change into my work shoes or change into my work outfit, right? Or like, you know, not wear my full blazer and whatever until I got to the building I had to be in because subway air, like you said, some cars are not air conditioned. How does one practically live in New York City and not, I guess, damage or soil your beautiful handbook, especially the taffeta? Or are you constantly cleaning? Like, what? Can you please explain to my poor brain that cannot figure out how this would have worked in my fourth floor walk-up? <laughs> I mean, it's been a learning curve, definitely. Um, so going a lot more seasonal, humbuck, with a historical nod to underdressing. What I wear underneath is of great importance. That will be laundered ridiculously. I have numerous sets of underwear and under tops and pants and layers for winter but that in terms of keeping all the beautiful silk garments clean i also as a rule i do not sit down anywhere and the very few instances that i go to a restaurant i am very judgmental about where i plop down 
but subway transit i barely sit at work but work is a clean place but i do not sit down that is a hard rule for me whatever the length of the subway ride i will be standing up i do the gracious gather my silks as i ascend a stairway many a hem have been sacrificed in that learning journey also do not sit in wheeled office chairs in humble my little tassel belts and such i've sacrificed many to the gods of office furniture oh my gosh i'm just imagining you on a city bike <laughs> like no sitting i my bicycle in the pandemic granted i had to tie up the long ends around my back like you'll see historically i always wonder when i'm about to do a thing i'm like hmm they had to have a, someone in my ancestry had to have encountered this problem how did they xyz and find just tie it up in the back i obviously cannot wear my hat but throw a helmet on my top knot and i'm wheeling down <laughs> central park west oh in silk God. and a face mask in the middle of lockdown <laughs> But yeah, you learn and you adjust like with anything, like if it's raining, I'm not going to wear ex certain garments. I have a poly a poly dupioni outer coat if it's the most horrible weather, then I have options, but a recently noted Korean tangible cultural asset, it's sangwal, which is the lifestyle of making and wearing hanbok daily so it's not just you know throwing on hanbok for new year and your wedding it's the lifestyle of korean culture of making and wearing our traditional dress so upon that practice in a modern new york setting i don't think it's crazy but there are rules and sort of things and that i have been accustomed in the years of doing this every day i love it I mean, I think we only see so much on Instagram. We see the great poses, we see the great outfits, we see the great settings. And my question is always like, but how did they get there? And and tying it up when you're on your bike and swapping the hat for a helmet make a lot of sense riding around. So I appreciate the insight. <laughs> Perhaps one day we'll learn to be as careful. <laughs> I don't know about the sitting though. <laughs> Good for you. Holding strong. Sorry, I'm I, okay. I'll just say it. I was like, "Oh, you must have a core of steel if you're like always standing and don't have like back." I mean, it's it's the theater dance background. Like, yeah, I will. You know, retail survival jobs. There is no sitting. Yeah, like I I'm used to it. I walk for fun. I'll start like in Tribeca and walk Manhattan just to look at stores and be out. Yeah, done that. Deepen the horrible tan line that exists underneath all this. <laughs> so, where other people have a farmer's tan, you have the hatband tan. Oh, it's three different colors because of the horsehair mesh. Ooh, ooh, it's beautiful. You know what? If you ever got an ajuma perm though, and you did the visor, you would already have the hat, <laughs> the correct line for it. I am. Ajima ready. Ajima realness ready. I look when I play golf in the Korean neighborhood here, they all are like, Why are you wearing a hat? Why aren't you wearing a visor? Like, <laughs> you've gotten the email for the uniform. Why? You have the sun sleeves. Where is your visor? 
Oh, I love that. So you you mentioned briefly, Jeff, that you you've made handbook for other people, um, and I think you used the word client. So do you commission handbook, and um, what's it like working, you know, with with clients? I am uh, definitely very small time. Uh, like I mentioned before, I'm very cautious about the work, passion, what you do for your business. Uh, maybe not should not be your passion or at least an adjacent distance from. I, for friends, a lot of the time, acquaintances, especially as an adoptee, uh, there are times with fellow Koreans that I have made humbok. I find it a wonderful experience because I know what that first time of wearing humbok for me is, or even my New York City friend. Korean friends, they'll come over and I'm like, let's play dress up time. I'm like, what would you like? Pick your <laughs> skirts. Uh, for instance, I have a friend, a fellow musical theater performer, Korean adoptee. Uh, she had a performance here in the city for an Asian theater performance group and wanted to wear a humbuk. And I said, come on down. We're luckily, once again, the same size. So... <laughs> I have ball gowns, traditional wear, I have wigs, like what do you need? I want to share that joy and that experience of being drenched in your own culture in the most beautiful way possible. Like the literal weight of that, it's almost like a a weighted comforting security blanket, like it, the one that Kam pets down. <laughs> Like, it's almost like that in my crazy adoptee mind, feeling this embrace and sort of surrounding. I love bringing that and helping other Koreans feel that. Even if it's just throw a jacket on. They don't, I don't demand full Joseon realness from everybody, but <laughs> just that little bit, I really love. And the further extent of creating a bespoke homebook where a person may not be in the sewing community, sewing world. So bringing them to the garment district into like mood on a non-busy hour, just seeing the eyes light up with possibility of, oh, French linen? Oh. And I'm like, yes, we can do anything you want with Humbok. Seeing the finished product in their fullest realized, idealized sense of their Korean self, I, I love giving that and or being able to help someone achieve that feeling. You mentioned a lot about community and friends who may or may not be in kind of the sewing and costuming and historical costuming communities. New York seems like such a great place to be if you are in any of those communities. Like you mentioned, Sostein. Now she's in, I think she's in New Jersey, so closer. Um, and I think you recently met up with Zach Pinsett, who does, I guess, I don't know if it would be considered dandy wear or 1800s Western wear. Regency gentleman. Yes, Regency gentleman. Again, I'm not a historical costumer. I wish I knew all these terms. I'm working on it. Very much enjoy all the content. But I'm curious, like, 
what do you enjoy about being part of that community, especially because um, I believe it's you and you mentioned your Hanbok twin, um, perhaps being the only Asians or the only people of Korean descent who are representing Hanbok in these communities? Is that difficult at all? Do you have commonalities with the other folks in these communities? I was deeply inspired by the the Western historical costuming, historical dress community, vintage community. They are my community of like-minded fashion individuals. I feel where I come from with this, and it's not a better than, less than any sort of mentality, where my reasons for this are of my own cultural pride, my own cultural investigation, reclaiming adoptee identity, where on the ever cautious foot of cultural appropriation, I don't like to dismiss, I encourage cultural appreciation and knowledge and learning, but my Korean community, my Asian community in the Western world, how we exist in a community often treated as perpetual foreigner. And I know this is exactly a fever dream for white nationalists to look at, but I have so much pride in that for Koreans, for Asians, for marginalized groups, people of color, our pride is beautiful. That sure, it may be what political fashion, anti-fashion, where I place it in, for instance, a ethnically white individual wearing European or vintage wear is not the same experience of my daily life being so visibly other in a Western space. My experience dressing in this level of homebook every day is not the experience the very few Koreans who still do this in Korea have. Where we are in our communities and where we live greatly, I feel, influence how I view it. So I love them and respect them. My experience from what they do, yes, we experience harassment in different forms and how people in New York especially feel like they can say things about you in front of you, but not to you. And the whole photography, I'm not really famous, so I don't understand why I get chased literally for locks. That kind of experience, I have to acknowledge that what I do and how they live are two different things. I love being around such visually different people like when we have an event, oh my God, to be inspired by fashion and the fabrics and the outfits and the commitment. Like, Mr. Dandy Wellington, please never stop throwing beautiful events. <laughs> Meeting the Asian community within the vintage community. That has been such an amazing experience to see. And their journey as Asian individuals in Western wear in what that does and how that informs their viewpoint of things. Like I said, though different, I am just grateful for how informed 
and though different, how it informs how I live my life, how I can learn from them, how I can respect and have empathy for everyone, though it may not be the same for me. I love that. It kind of goes back to the whole reason why we started this podcast in the first place, because Nicole and I and everybody behind the scenes would, you know, post whatever we're sewing, kind of just mostly modern garments, if I'm being honest, some quilts and and things on Instagram. And it felt like our experience wearing these clothes, even though they are modern and they are what the vast majority of people we see day to day are wearing in the Western world, uh, was, you know, it was the same as what other people were posting, but they didn't really look at or understand that, like, the way we wore it on our bodies, you know, I can't, I can't change this. I can't change Mm -hmm. any of this. That experience living through it would be different from theirs and that we would want to talk about it. So I appreciate your candidness and sharing that. And yeah, I love, I love hearing that that is your your experience overall has been something that you are willing to share with us and continue to share with folks. Um, I think Nicole has one last question, which is on a more fun note, I will say. I, I mean, it's fun to hear about your experience in the community. I, I just to piggyback off of what Ada said, you know, I think something that you'd said about being in the costuming community, I got the sense that like you, you, you're a historical costumer, but it's not a costume for you. Yeah, I hate that word. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Oh, we're going to stop using that word. Oh, my God. Because <laughs> no, I think costume, like Ada, you had said, when you go and rent it, it's, it's a costume, not a garment. But for you, you know, there's there's the fun balls and the events. And man, do I want to go to one. But I don't know if I'm ever at the like level for Come any on, of the types please. of Please. <laughs> Come play with maybe. us. Not maybe. It'll happen. Ada, we're doing it. I think a hanbok looks a lot easier to make than anything Sostein makes. I'm just be oh. that's what I'm gonna put out there. Bless like, her. Bless her. She's also got a full time job and a family. And I'm like a beautiful small child. And she sews for her partner. Sure. Where? Where? Show me your Hermione Granger time travel. <laughs> right? Right? I'm like, yeah. Hanbok seems easier. Hanfu on the Chinese end uh seems it's similar but different. Still a lot of taffeta going on right now, I think, in the in the modern reinterpretations. Even a chipao, like, seems so much simpler <laughs> than a lot of what I see happening. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> Simple and equally beautiful. Um, and I think most of those folks go home and take off the costume and put on jeans and a t-shirt. But this is something more for you. And I think that being in that community and showing people and hopefully having the under that them having the understanding that this is this is more than a costume it is not it is you honoring um you know your heritage the exploration of your heritage and just being a badass i just like sigh i'm thinking about how like i just like love everything that you make and so this last i guess less not serious it is serious right okay it's it's a fun question um can you narrow down your vast experience with Hamburg to your favorite creation. What's the your favorite thing that you've made? Could be the undergarments that I saw on your Instagram account. <laughs> it's on your Instagram, so it's not weird. <laughs> yes, I know. I'm like, I put it up there. I put yeah. it there. It's I've made that choice. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool. Go check it out. Um, but yeah, what's been your the fa- your favorite thing that you've made for yourself in this journey? 
to sort of clarify, like, I understand and fully accept historical costume as like an academic term, but like yes. the everyday interactions I have with a complete stranger, I love your costume and I go, I love yours too. Oh, I love that. Or, you know, it's just solid Asian bitch face, cork and Asian eyebrow. And what do you get? These are my clothes. This is clothing. So, but that's my only aversion is the Halloween. Halloween is the one day you'll see me in as modern as can be. My hair is down, not braided. I'm in as the modern, most passable, discreet humbuck that I have because it's the one day that I just will not entertain anything. But favorite thing I have made, I think that is a fuchsia plaid giant cholik ball gown. The One of the Matt Fashion Matt Gala exhibits uh, featured a giant plaid gown from amazing American designer Christopher John Rogers. And it's like the crown and glory. I stared at this thing multiple visits for hours. I later come to find in the first studio I worked at, coincidentally, though Russian owned, had a Korean woman drafter, became my big sister, like taught me so much, took me under her wing. She drafted that dress because she worked for Christopher John Rogers. She goes, holds up my Instagram. You like that dress? I made that dress. I go, what? But yeah, I was brave enough to bunch it up, tie it up to do a gorilla fashion shoot. I pulled a cord, took off a coat and did a quick photo shoot on the steps of the mat. My dear friend, uh, Noel, costuming drama on YouTube and Instagram, bought me that fabric as a gift. Our first meeting was around that time and I spent a day and a half making it before they left so I could wear it for our trip to the Met. And it, it holds just a lot of meaning, A, from when I first made it and one of my first out in public extravagant photo shoots to the meaning that she has since unfortunately passed away. But my big sister, what our fate and serendipity and coincidence that they made that dress that inspired me so hugely. Uh, that one, I think it, it's gorgeous. I had thoughts to trim it or pin it so I could wear it more, but I'm like, I don't want to touch it. One day I'll buy a petticoat to go under it, but <laughs> the purpley fuchsia plaid extravagant ball gown is my favorite so far. I just found it on your Instagram. It's beautiful. And I do remember that dress from that exhibit. Yeah. Jaw drop when she's like, yeah, I drafted it. New York. How small is New York? <laughs> Especially in fashion. I see the Tom Brown people walking around the neighborhood at lunch and I go, I love your uniforms. <laughs> <laughs> They're so cute. They, I mean, I've seen them there. <laughs> I love everything about this. We will definitely be sharing those photos in the show notes and hopefully to our Instagram when this episode is out. So make sure to follow Jeff at Yang Chun Sheik on Instagram and keep an eye out next time you're in New York. I definitely will be. If I see you on the street, don't freak out if there's some random Asian girl running after you. Jeff, <laughs> remember me? <laughs> um, but I'm sure that folks will really love and appreciate all of the thought and care you put into dressing every day and sharing that with us. Yeah, I really, really appreciate you being on today. Thank you so much. It was so nice 
to get to know you and hopefully more of our beautiful, beautiful Asian sewing community. I know we're everywhere. Please, please join us. But thank you so much. It's been so wonderful chatting away with y'all. If you like our show, please consider supporting us on Coffee. Your financial support helps us with overhead expenses and will allow us to give back to our currently all-volunteer team who works so hard to provide you with new content every week. The link to our Coffee page is ko-fi.com slash Asian Sewist Collective, and you can also find the link in our show notes on our website and on our Instagram account. Check us out on Instagram at Asian Sewist Collective, that's one word, Asian Sewist Collective, and you can also help us out by spreading the word and telling your friends. We would love it if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All of the links and resources mentioned in today's episode will be in the show notes on our website, that's AsianSewistCollective.com. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us with your questions, comments, or even voice messages if you'd like to be featured on a future episode at AsianSewistCollective at gmail.com. <laughs>